Um, First Samuel is, is an old book. It, it really is about 3,000 years old from the history that it's covering. Is All the events happened in the 11th and 10th century B.C., um, so we're about 3,000 years removed. Um, it is a historical narrative, um, or you could call it a, a, a theological history of this time period in Israel when we are leaving the judges period and beginning to move towards a monarchy, right? Where the people who have a king, they have a king in God, right? But they're saying, no, no, we want a king. We want a, a man who is our king to lead us. And judges ends with saying, listen, there was, there was no king. And so everyone just kind of did what they wanted. And so we're in a scene, a time period of uh, maybe we wouldn't go quite to lawlessness, but, but just about. I mean, where it was, it was ugly and it was violent. And there were still people who were following and trusting the God of Israel, but many weren't. And, and so we're in that scene. And the, the books of First and Second Samuel are really one book. It's 55 chapters telling one story. And it's really the story of Samuel, Saul, and David. And it's put together as a history that's teaching about God's people and God's character. But it's also um, showing um, how God is intervening in history and showing this time period. And so um, we are going to get to see a lot of just the, the reality of human um, sin, right? I mean, like just the, the absolute reality that we, we struggle to, to trust and to follow God. And because of that, we, our tendency is to trust in political systems and to trust in kings and to trust in other things other than him. And we end up walking um, often further from God and in our sin. And so we're going to see kind of the highs and lows of human nature in this book. And really this morning, um, if you weren't here last week, we're going to cover bigger chunks. And so if we start to, to look at a lot, it's because it's a story and you kind of have to take in all of it at a time. We're really going to see kind of the, the rise of one family and the fall of another family. There's going to be two families this morning represented. And we're going to kind of compare and contrast what, what God is doing. So if you have your Bible, we're going to begin in the verse 12 of chapter 2. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest, meaning Samuel. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephah, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless them and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. And so they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. 
And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, (coughs) and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such evil things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. We're going to stop there for just a moment. (coughs) Excuse me. You know, we, we want to do Old Testament books because we believe that all of God's worth is, is, is valuable, right? That it teaches, that it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Um, and, and so even though the historical context, it, we are far removed from it, um, I think we will clearly see um, what, what is going on here and, and what the Lord would have for us this morning in Pampa some 3,000 years later. Um, listen, Samuel's going to be direct, right? I mean, it just doesn't kind of lay out. It's like, hey, his sons were worthless, right? Like not a great description of the priest and his sons to say he had these sons who were worthless men. And so here's, here's kind of what's going on. These boys are corrupting the, the priestly sacrificial system. And God had given some specific rules that we'll see in Leviticus and Numbers and in Deuteronomy um, and one of them is, is it was talking about, hey, give us the raw meat. And we see the people say, no, 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 we're supposed to burn the fat. What you'll see is in Leviticus 3, um, 3 through 5, and also in seventeen six that the fat portion was for God. Right? Like that was for him. And they would burn it. And here's what Leviticus says. Um Beginning verse 3. From the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat. Then he he just describes where it covers. In verse 5. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar, on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so what we see is the fat was burned, right? And as it came off, that, that fragrant aroma was like, hey, I'm giving this, Lord, to you. I'm making this sacrifice for you, this is your portion, and it's this fragrant aroma. The New Testament will talk about our lives as a sacrifice, and, and our obedience to God is a fragrant aroma to the Lord, right? In, instead of, we don't have a sacrificial system here now, right? It's we live as sacrifices before the Lord. And so they're obviously, they're taking the meat and saying, hey, the portion that's God's, we're going to take that, right? So they're already dishonoring him. They're, they're robbing him of this aroma. We'll see in Leviticus 7 and in Deuteronomy 18, there were specific pieces of the meat that the priest got. They got the breast meat. Um, they got the right thigh, depending on the animal. And what they're doing is they've created a new system, right? That they're just going to stick this fork in and whatever they can pull out is going to be theirs. And, and so they're, they're robbing from the sacrificial system. And then Leviticus 22.9 will tell us that if, if a priest profanes the sacrificial system, that what God has for them is death. 
right? Like the, the expectation was that you are going to mediate this because it's for my people in the, w- the way that they're going to find worship and the way that they're going to find a reminder of redemption, right? That I've rescued them is through the sacrificial system. And so if you profane this, if you do something other than what I've commanded and asked you to do, then the responsibility is like the, the consequence is death. And so in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see the, the sacrificial system laid out in great detail. And so what is happening here is that they have been given this because in Exodus, God rescues his people from the hands of the Egyptians. Right? He makes them his and he rescues them out. And it's important for us to note that he does that before he calls them to any obedience. Right? They haven't earned something. They haven't merited something. He rescues them out. And then he takes them to Sinai where he gives them the law. And he gives them the sacrificial system. And he gives them these rules and ordinances right, to, to create a nation and a people to walk humbly with God. But he does that after he's already rescued them. The obedience comes afterwards. Exodus 34, 8 will tell us that God is gracious. Right, that his loving kindness and his mercy, right, is gracious to them, but that there is a holiness that is expected, right, and, and it's why that only Moses went up on Mount Sinai. The people fell back, and he says, "Listen, if you or your animals touch this mountain when God descends on it, you're going to die. You're going to be consumed." That we're seeing that God is both gracious and merciful and rescue, right? That he's he's not unrealistic. He's calling them to obedience after they've been rescued, but that he's also holy. And so the sacrificial system was meant to be a reminder, right, that you need blood shed because your sin stinks before the Lord. And this fragrant aroma is, is, right, is a reminder that you need God to be on your side. You need to be rescued. You need Him. And His character is faithful and it's good and it's merciful, but He is holy, And so the sacrificial system was meant to be meaningful. It was not meant to just be rote, right, um, habitual religious behavior. It was meant to be rich with meaning and and, and symbolism and the character of God. And so what these boys are doing, these men, the sons of Eli, is they're completely trashing it, right? They're, They're making it for their benefit and for their gain. And so they are profaning the name of God. And they're turning it into religious habits only. What's happening is they're forgetting, right, the, the, the gospel here. They're forgetting what God has done on their behalf. And church, if we're, if we're not careful, right, we can forget this too. Right? We can forget that God has been merciful and gracious. We can forget that God has forgiven us of our sins. That he has taken those of us who are far from him and has brought us close to him. And we can begin to fall into rote religious rhythms with church attendance, right? With perfunctory, just we we open our Bible in the morning to read it so that we can check the box, but we're not really looking to meet with God. We show up at church because that's what our, our culture does, right? We give a little, we do these things, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, so why are we doing these things? I don't know. It's what we've always done. And they begin to be robbed of meaning, Right? We call our kids or, or others to moral standards and moral behavior without the fact that there was a need and a rescue that's already been taken place. And so what happens is we begin to walk away from the beauty of our rescue. In Galatians 6-7 tells us that God will not be mocked. 
And what is happening here is the priest and Shiloh are mocking God. They have forgotten who he is, both in his holiness and in his graciousness, both in his rescue and both in their their need for redemption. They've forgotten it, and so they are mocking him. And so we see in verse 17 that they have profaned this. Listen to how it's said. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. They knew what they were supposed to do, and they weren't doing it. They were making right the people of God look bad. The fact is, is others were coming and saying, hey, aren't we supposed to burn the fat first? And the priests are like, hey, I'll fight you. Like, give me mine. And they were threatening them and fighting them over. And so the people even knew this isn't what God has set up. And yet they're being violent and threatening them. They're not reflecting the character and the meaning of what God has given. They're doing this with, with sex, with violence, with threats. And this is Eli who's in charge, his family. Right? It is It is damning. And we are supposed to, as we see this, be comparing what God is doing in Hannah's family. Because last week we saw her come, right? And she pours out her heart, begging the Lord for a child and saying, I will, I will place my child to serve you for the rest of his life. I just answer my, my prayer. And God has answered that prayer. And Samuel is now there. And in, in, in the midst of an era of the judges where everyone's just kind of doing their own thing, this family is annually going to worship. Hannah makes a vow before the Lord, right? And sometimes we make vows and prayers before the Lord to get what we want, thinking we can like backdoor it and, and not have to keep our vow, right? Like we did what we said what we had to to get what we wanted. Hannah gets this child that she's longed for and then keeps her vow. Her husband allows her to keep her vow. And now they continue to go year after year. In the midst of this decadence and, and horrible situation, Samuel is ministering to the Lord. He is growing up in, in trust and in, in faithfulness. Right? We can be encouraged right, that God is able to keep us pointed towards him even in the midst of a, a decadent society, in the midst of a violent, um, religiously mocking society. That Hannah has, and her husband and family have set them on a trajectory to know God. To trust him. So let's, let's pick up in verse 27 of chapter 22. We're going to continue here. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar? To burn incense and to wear an ephah before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from the altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them will die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. And he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's place that I may eat a morsel of bread. So we see this horrific scene of what Eli's sons are doing. In the midst of this, right, like Eli has gone to them and said, boys, don't do that. It's not a good report I'm hearing. And they continue. They don't listen. And this unnamed prophet, this unnamed man of God, shows up with a horrifying word for Eli and his family. To say, listen, your, your power, your prestige, your role is going to be taken from you. Your sons are going to die on the same day. And you're going to know that then everything I say is going to be true. And I'm just going to begin to wipe out your family. There will only be one, that's, one man that's going to be spared. And we're going to see that come to fruition in 1 Samuel 22. We'll see a lot of what has been promised here come as we walk through this book. That there will be a priest who survives in order to, to grieve and to mourn over the family and what God has done. But what we're seeing here is that, that Eli is guilty. right? He's guilty um, in his parenting in his priestly roles, that he has not stopped what his sons are doing. That he hasn't, like, listen, we know that we can't change our kids' hearts. But Eli, in his role, could have said, boys, here's what I expect of you. And if you can't do it, then I will unemploy you. Right? You, you may go do it, but you're not going to do it in the name of God any longer. And instead, for his family's dignity or sake, he has allowed them to continue to profane the name of God for years. He has scorned this. And so God says, listen, you have honored your family and your boys over me, right? You're breaking the commandment of having no other God before me. You have scorned me and you have honored them over me. And so you're guilty. He doesn't rebuke them. And yet, we saw last week, he was willing to quickly rebuke Hannah. When she comes in and she is praying and pouring her heart out before God, he assumes she's drunk. Right? In the house of God. Why? Most likely he had seen that scene before in his boys. Right? And now instead of rebuking them, he is rebuking this woman who is pious and faithful. And so he hasn't stepped into the role that God has called him as both priest or father. Do you remember Hannah's prayer in chapter 2? She talks about the reversals of fortune, right? That God's going to give children to those who don't, 
right? And those who, who, who have many, right, are, are going to be sad. That those who are strong are going to be made weak. And those who are weak are going to be basically saying, like, God is able to reverse human fortune. In one of those verses in, in chapter 5, one of the lines she prays, she says this, Those who were full, who were full, have hired themselves out for bread. And those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Compare that now to verse 36 in this prophetic word. Everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's place that I may have a morsel of bread. Right, as we hear Hannah's prayer earlier in chapter 2, we're assuming this is the enemies of God that are being talked about. These are people outside of Israel. And what God is telling us, what he is teaching is like, even within my people... I will reverse things. That if you are going to profane and dishonor, if you're going to sin against me and run from me, I will reverse fortunes. I'm not going to allow injustice to just continue to happen. And this is not what the, the sacrificial system was meant for. This is not what the priestly system was meant for. And people are going to see it and they're going to know it. Because I'm going to act and I'm going to move in a powerful and violent way. And so Eli is guilty. His boys are guilty. We're going to continue and read in chapter 3. And this, this will be as far as we go. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you. Lie back down. So he went and he lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel, and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call my son. Lay back down. Now Samuel did not know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and he lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also. If you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And so Samuel told him everything and he hid nothing from him. And he, meaning Eli, said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. 
And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Right, so this incredible passage, you have this child, right, who is growing up in this home that is not honoring God, and yet he is being taught to serve God. And then he, when he meets God, he gets a terrifying word that he has to then go and tell his caregiver, God's going to kill you. Right? I mean, like, it's just this incredible story. And I think it's important for us here to note in verse 1, right, that it was rare for the word of God to be spoken. Right? This is typically in, in Scripture a sign that God is displeased with what's going on when His Word becomes less and less frequent. And so God is not speaking. Right? He's not speaking to Eli and to Eli's sons because they're not honoring Him. They're not leading the people to know and to trust God in the right way. And really there has not been a prophet, a named national prophet since Moses. Right, So we're, we're, we're lacking this one who hears from the Lord and is going to speak on his behalf. In Deuteronomy 18, right, there was a promise that there would be, that God would not stop with Moses. That it would continue. Listen to this. This is uh, verse 15 of chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And, it's to li- and it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God. Let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. So I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, he shall not speak in my name. I myself will require it of, it, of him. And he continues to give some description of what a prophet, how, how to know a prophet or not. But basically the people of God had said, we're afraid to hear your voice, God. It, it terrifies us. So he's saying, I'm going to speak to you through prophets, through men who I will speak to, give visions to, and they will tell you what's going on. And so what we see now is Samuel's going to be that prophet, that he is being raised up. This is like his origin story, right? As we're going to walk through Samuel to see that God has called and equipped and made him a prophet in comparison to Moses. Um, it's, it's important for us to, to remember that 1 Samuel 3 is describing what happened. It is not saying that in, in your salvation experience that you're going to have God call out to you like this. Right? It is not prescribing that, it is describing it. And again, one of the things that would be great fodder for conversation this week in GC that we're, we're not going to really be able to dive into is, is honestly is Eli's response to this horrible, terrifying word of God. Right? In verse 18, that Eli says, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That we see that Eli had some had some knowledge, some trust, some respect of God, that he was like, what, what am I going to do? He, he will do what's right. Um, a response that, that we can talk about, do, do we have that as we face difficulty in life? But here's where we're going we're gonna to kind of end with these two thoughts this morning. The first is this, 
Um, listen, Eli couldn't have saved his kids. We can't save our children. We can't save our grandchildren. We can't save our nieces and nephews. Right? We, we, we can't do that. But we see these two families run two very different trajectories. Eli would throw some words out there at his boys, but he was letting them do what they wanted as they dishonored and despised the name of the Lord in the sacrificial system. Hannah and her family, they're, they're praying, they're visiting, they're worshiping. Right? They have put Samuel on a very different trajectory. So the question for this, us this morning is, as you look at, at your life or the life of those you're responsible for, what kind of trajectory are they on? Like, if they, if they hit the goal that you're shooting at, what does that look like? Is it just being a good, responsible person? Is it being a lover of Jesus? Right? Is it being... Right, really popular, really wealthy, a great athlete. Like what, what trajectory is it on? And listen, you probably have multiple trajectories, but what is the ultimate one? Because it's important for us to note in verse 7 of chapter 3, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He didn't know the Lord yet. And yet what is he doing? He is serving God. He is honoring. And listen, you could say, well, he's just going through the motions. He doesn't know any better. Okay, but the trajectory that he had been set on was to know God, was to serve God, and then God stepped in and saved him. The trajectory that Eli's boys was on was to do whatever they wanted. They were living out judges, right? That whatever was right in their eyes, they were doing it. And so the trajectory was to despise God. Even though they were growing up in the house of God, they were being taught to despise God. While Samuel, in the midst of this... um, immoral situation had been set on a trajectory to know to trust and to serve god and so we see multiple times in chapter two and three that samuel was serving that samuel was ministering to god and now we find out he didn't even know god yet and so what we say often here at redeemer is we want to pile kindling around our our, our kids hearts right we want to like maybe they're going through the motions to be here with you this morning Maybe they're going through the motions as you pray with them at night, as you read scripture with them, until God saves them, right? Until he ignites their heart. And then there's something to burn, right? Samuel met God and he was already serving and ministering. And now he could walk in the faithful obedience to him, right? That he was not having to change his trajectory or his walk. He was continuing to walk in it now with understanding and with insight, He wasn't offering lip service only. And so would we just be encouraged that whether you were praying for a relative, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a kid, a grandchild, that we can we can teach and point people to Jesus before they know Jesus. We can set that as a trajectory so that there's something to burn when God shows up and ignites their heart. Right? Through his spirit and through his word. And the second thing is this. I hope verse 25 maybe made you ask this question, but who's going to mediate? Listen to verse 25 of chapter 2 again. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Right? Like, so who? Who can mediate? Because what we're seeing in 1 Samuel 2 and 3 is our sin has an effect and it matters because you are sinning against a holy God. 
And so, yeah, they were not listening to their father. Yeah, they were sinning against individuals and these women, right? But they were sinning and profaning the name of God. In church, our sin is not just personal. And it's not just against the person that you sinned against or a people that you sinned against. It's against a holy God who has given us a, a, a way to live. And when we sin, what we are saying is my way is better and I'm rebelling against you. And we profane the name of God. Like if we're anyone in this story, we are Eli and his boys. Right? It's an uncomfortable place to be. That we profane the name of God with our rebellion and our sin. And we often want to think he's not as holy. Like we, we'll throw that word out, he's holy. But I don't want to think of him as like the kind of holy that kills. Because what does that mean for me? Right? Because then I have to ask, who, who will mediate? Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 1. This is verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth. If you go down to verse 24 and 25, as he describes sin, he then says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What Paul is saying is God's wrath is poured out against sin and rebellion. And that we can sin to a point where God's like, it's yours. Have it. And then, then what? Right? There's, no, there's no other mediator other than God. And so our sin matters. And so we should see the, the ugliness of our rebellion. We should see that we actually deserve the death that is coming for Eli and his boys. It's what our sin demands. It's what justice demands. That we are the enemy and we are uncomfortable and we have profaned the name of God. But then sprinkled in is verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then verse 35, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my mind and in my heart, right? And he will serve my anointed forever. Verse 26, if you're familiar with Luke, Luke 2.52, right, is that Jesus grew in favor and stature with both God and man, right? We're beginning to see this, this promise of one who's going to come, who's going to mediate, who's going to be the rightful priest, the rightful prophet and the rightful king. Right, that we have this hope that God is doing something different in Samuel. And so we, we turn again to Paul in 1 Timothy 2. And we hear this. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Listen. Here's the thing. Your sin is blasphemy. It's not trusting God. It's not honoring God. And it deserves death. And it will get death. It will. The question is, is are we going to stand with Eli and his boys and it'll be our death and that justice comes for? Or will we instead see the grace and the glory and the gift of Jesus on the cross? Where he takes the wrath, the anger of God towards sin so that he is crushed humiliated, mocked, beaten, and killed. 
And then when he comes out of the tomb three days later, right, having beaten sin and Satan and death, what he says is, now come in. You have access to the God, right, who you once would have feared. But now I'm inviting you in because my grace, my sacrifice will cover your sin. And so church, here's the thing. God still feels about sin the way we see here that makes us uncomfortable. But he has provided a mediator, one who will take that wrath, that death on our behalf so that we can have access back to God, so that we can have peace with God, so that we can be brought into the family of God, so that we don't have to fear him and hide in the corner, but that we come running to him, calling him father, because justice has been brought and salvation has been paid for and our forgiveness has been won. And we are now covered by the perfection, obedience of Jesus. And our sin has been washed away. Right? So this should make us uncomfortable with our sin. We should see a holy God and really grateful for Jesus because he did what we couldn't do. Right? That's what this is stirring in us. That he is calling us then to walk in obedience after our rescue. Just like he did for the people of Israel. Hey, I'm going to rescue you, then I'm going to tell you what to do. Right? He calls us to salvation. He ignites our hearts. And then he calls us to obedience. It's not our obedience that rescues us. Look at even at Samuel. Because we see in verse 7, Samuel did not know the Lord. Now, in verse 19, at the end of 1 Samuel 3. So Samuel grew. And the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel knew him. And the Lord appeared again, for the Lord had revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. We see Samuel walk in obedience after God saves him. Right? He walks in obedience where the others have failed in this, and they will pay for their sin. That Samuel walks in obedience as he has come to know the Lord. And so this morning, we're going to finish here. The band's going to come back up, and we're going to sing right and true things to our God in heaven who is also present with us via His Spirit. But church, something that may need to happen this morning is repentance. We may need to repent that the trajectory that we have placed ourselves on or our family on or our children on is not pointing to Jesus. It's not raising, trusting that God's going to save them. Right now, it might be that they would be despising Him or maybe it's somewhere a little more insidious that they would simply be indifferent or religious but not loving Him, knowing Him. Maybe this morning we need to repent because for the first time your sin is before you. And you're like, oh, I'm deserving of this death. I would be Eli and his sons today if God were not to intervene. And here's the good news. He is intervening. He's making you aware and he is calling you to trust him and to know him. And you can hear him calling your voice and saying, come and know me. Be an adopted son, an adopted daughter. Be washed clean and brought into the family and your guilt will be wiped away because I have mediated on your behalf. And there'll be some men and women in the back of the room. If you need to talk to or pray with someone, if you have questions, if you think, I think God is calling me. His sheep hear him when he calls. We respond as Samuel did. And then the last thing is this, is maybe we repent for the trajectory we're on, our kids are on. Maybe we repent of our sin Or maybe you have realized this morning that there are some religious activities in your life right now that are profaning the name of God. 
They look right on the outside, but the heart is wrong, and they're not reflecting what we are called to do. And you just want to repent of that. Ask God to forgive you. Listen, His His mercy far outruns our sin. And it's in His kindness that He calls us to repentance. You will find in that severe conviction, grace and mercy beyond what you can imagine. When we express, God, I have not walked in the way that you have called me to. And maybe this morning there's not repentance for you. Maybe it's simply being reminded and rejoicing in the glory of a holy God and in the rescue of Jesus. So whatever God is stirring, whatever God is doing, I'm going to pray for us and let's respond to him this morning. Father, you are bigger than we think you are. You're more than we think you are. You're holier than we think you are. Your rescue of us in Christ is more significant than we often give it credit for. God, would we not leave this morning bound up in our sin? Would we confess it and repent? God, would we not leave this morning indifferent and merely religious instead of knowing and trusting Jesus who has called us into the family, who has rescued us, who has done what we could not do? Father, would you speak when we're listening? God, would you give us the courage to respond as needed? Father, would you be pleased with our response? Would it be worship to you? Would it be a fragrant aroma? Christ honoring and God glorifying. In Jesus' name, amen.